Hello and welcome to the That's My Truth podcast. I'm your host, Juliana, and I'm so glad you're tuning in today. If you are a first-time listener, I'd like to welcome you to the show. And if you are a returning listener, I'd like to welcome you back to another episode. This podcast features discussions with people who I admire and look up to about everything from career and wellness to social issues and friendship. If you are looking for ways to support the show, there are a few ways. First, you can leave a review or rating in Apple Podcasts. Second, you can share an episode with a friend or share it on social media. And lastly, you can follow us on social media and anywhere we are present online. So check us out. But overall, more than anything, you listening is the most supportive thing you can do. So thank you for tuning in. And thanks so much for tuning in to the That's My Truth podcast. I'm your host, Juliana, and I am excited to introduce today's guest for the interview. So as you know, if you have been listening for some time, I went to UConn and I have met some incredible people, Some of the, many of the guests actually that I've had on, like Ellie, Nicole, Liv, I'm trying to think of who else I had on from school. Many people are from UConn. And this today's guest is also a UConn alum. And I believe we met on a one-day service event and just chatted on the bus um, and had a great conversation and then ended up connecting over social media. So today's guest is Alexa Friedman. She is currently studying for her PhD in environmental epidemiology. So I really enjoyed interviewing Alexa. I'm so glad that she was open to being on the podcast. And I will now turn it over to the interview. So enjoy. Hello, Alexa. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you. So a fellow UConn alum, love it. So to start us off, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, um, I'm Alexa, and I should start by saying I've been working really hard to introduce myself separate from, you know, what I do for work, so I'm going to try really hard to do that, but I'm sure it'll, it'll come on, come up right when I go through. Um, so, hi, I'm Alexa. I'm, t- I'm 24 years old. I'm currently living in Boston, but I'm originally from New York. Um, I did my undergrad studies, like you said, at UConn, so I'm just slowly moving myself up the Northeast. I'm sure Vermont is next, maybe Maine. Um, and I identify myself as someone who's just a very curious person and someone that, you know, seeks the answers to questions and, and in doing so that's where my passions and hobbies come into play. So I like to ask a lot of questions and pursue the answers to that. And I think that's what's led me to continue my education beyond uh, what I did at UConn. So I, I did my bachelor's at UConn in 2018. I finished up. And now I'm studying environmental epidemiology at Boston University School of Public Health. Um, and I think what's led me there is just purely curiosity and, and following what makes me excited. I love your introduction. Is that something you've been thinking about for a while, how to introduce yourself outside of work? Yeah, I think this has is, is come, is come up for me more during you know the last year. And I, I think people have had to bring their work home with them, which is something I've always tried really hard not to do in general. And even when I was at UConn, um, the best advice I got early in my education was to never study in your room or never to study in your personal space and to try to leave your worries at the door. And I don't think that's been 
so possible for people during the pandemic. And I think identifying myself outside of what I do for school has always been a challenge and I'm trying really hard to figure that out. Um, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it necessarily because who we are as people drives our passions and what we end up doing for work. It's just a personal goal of mine to to find myself outside of, of work sometimes and to be able to, even when we're working from home, find home outside of work. So you mentioned that you are studying environmental epidemiology. When did you first become interested in that subject? And also, can you explain like what it is? Yeah, no, I was thinking about that as I said in as you asked your question. Um, so epidemiology, you know, the definition of this field is, and it's probably become very commonplace for people these days, you know, following this pandemic. Uh, but epidemiology is the study of populations and and the path to disease very generally. So instead of thinking about how an individual person may have a disease or an outcome, we think about the population. So we study on a group level um, the relationship between some sort of exposure and disease. The field of ep environmental epidemiology focuses on how we interact with our world outside of us. So the idea of the environment is, is more than just like our air or our water. And I think in general, when I say I'm in the field of environmental health, people tend to think I'm, I'm studying soil and water and trees, which is partly true, but it also includes other things in our environment, like our home and the people we are surrounded with and our public transportation or our access to things in which we are located. Um, so the field of environmental epidemiology is studying our, how people are healthy and how people's health is related to their environment um, in like the general sense. And I think about the idea of, you know, what got me started or what got me interested quite often, and I'm not sure that there's one moment. I think it was a lot of moments and a lot of different forks in the road, and each each time I came to this place, I, I kind of leaned one way. So I think where it started is, like I said, I'm a curious person, and I had a lot of questions. And I, I tended to, like, I think for my whole life, always approach things with asking why and how. So how do things work? Why are things these ways? Um, and I knew that when I got to school or when I was choosing my undergrad, my concentration, I was really interested in helping people. So I knew that I was curious and I wanted to help people. And those were pretty much the only two things I knew. Um, and then when it came down to public health, I think that's kind of my first stop, my first fork in the road. And it was, I want to help people, but do I want to help people in the sense of medicine? So I think that's where everyone gets pulled first, including myself, is we want to help people. And the first thing we think of is I want to help people that are sick. And I think that was, and it's true, and it's a very admirable and noble place to be. Um, but as I kind of continued towards that path of I want to help people and I want to help people from being sick, I realized I actually want to help people from ever being sick. I want to be in the preventative side of things and versus the curative. So that was sort of my first fork in the road. Um, so I knew I wanted to go into public health. And then why environmental health? I think there's some like, you know, basic reasons or statistical reasons I can give you in terms of over one fourth of disease and, and disability in the world is related to our environment. So I think for me, knowing that I could contribute to one of the largest contributors to disease and disability was one big pull. Um, but the other part of it, too, is I think there are a lot of personal decisions we can make to protect ourselves or, or to be healthy within reason. So we can choose to have a more active lifestyle when, th when that's permitted. We can choose to not smoke or drink or, or do something like that. So there's this idea of personal behaviors to be healthy. But one thing we don't have 
control over all the time is, is the air we breathe or the water we drink or the spaces in we're around. So combined with this is the largest contributor to health with this is what people have the least control over was what really, you know, solidified for me, like environmental health is the place where I want to be. And that's where I want to focus my career in public health. I think that's really interesting. And I guess, did you yourself ever live in an area or part of the world that had environmental injustices or um, poor environmental health that contributed to your interest? So yes, but not at the time. At the time in which I was there, I didn't think about it. And it's an interesting question because now that I reflect and as I was in my coursework, I reflected on where I'm from. You know, the basic answer to that is I grew up in New York, um, right next to a, a power plant. So all of my elementary and middle school education, we did these like nuclear, I don't even know what to call them, drills maybe, where we would like, this is what would happen if there was a nuclear explosion. And we would take these pills and go on these buses. And you know, that seemed commonplace for me at the time. And now I'm in a field where we're like, oh, this community is near a power plant. Like we need to look at all of these outcomes. And I think back to like myself, like I was exposed to that. My family is still exposed to that. Both of my, my mom and my stepdad, they work at the power plant, um, which is which is now closed, um, which is kind of this other layer to things, right? So like I'm in a community where there is an environmental hazard, but a lot of the community is employed by that that person that in, contributes mm-hmm. to the environmental hazard. And that's actually a, a very common theme in environmental health and, and environmental justice is it's really hard to go up against a community or a company in a community that's contributing to an environmental threat when that company is part of the livelihood of the community. Um, and that's like a whole nother tangent I can go on to. <laughs> um, and then part of, uh, you know, I think there's just a lot of a lot of instances in my life where I've realized, yes, like I've been in a case or in, in a situation where an environmental health question has, has shaped who I am. And I think that's related to, um, sadly, a lot of the natural disasters that have taken place in, in Puerto Rico recently. Um, so my, my mom is from Puerto Rico and seeing a natural disaster anywhere, we, you know, we now know that there's a lot of long lasting effects besides the destruction, the obvious, obvious physical threats to th- health. That includes like water and sanitation will very likely continue to be an issue. And I think experiencing that as someone that identifies with that community, but also just as I was learning more and more about public health, kind of connecting the dots has shaped. Yes, I have had these experiences that were shaping me towards this field, but I don't think I could have named it at the time in which I was going through those things. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, um, kind of thinking back on the different experiences you've had. So then my next question is, what made you want to pursue your PhD as opposed to another degree like a master's or another route? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And I should say that while I was at UConn, um, I was part of or I had the opportunity to be a part of this inaugural class of um, this four plus one program. So four plus one programs are opportunities when someone's working at their at the bachelor level to allow students to start taking courses at a higher education level. So whether that be like a master's program or graduate courses. So UConn started offering this four plus one program for an MPH or a master's of public health. And I started taking these classes and I did have the opportunity to take some graduate coursework. Um, 
but for like a number of reasons finishing the four plus one wasn't really like a good fit for me in terms of like financial decisions and and timing and originally I was applying to master's programs or I was looking at sort of this idea of um, like post-bac programs which are kind of this in between a bachelor's and an advanced degree um, and I had a fantastic advisor that you know sat me down and said you want long-term to pursue research so I think you know, why did I want a PhD? It's be, it's because of this personality trait of being curious and, and pursuing questions. And I knew that I wanted to, to create the space in my life to pursue something I was really passionate about, that being the health of people related to their environments. Um, and when I was with this advisor and she knew this about me, she said, I know you're applying for master's programs, but why not go for your PhD? You're, you're qualified now and I don't know what's holding you back. And I said, well, I'm just not ready. I don't, I don't have enough qualifications. And she said, there's no right amount of qualifications. You're qualified when you're ready and you're interested and you're passionate. And I think when people ask me like, oh, you know, how did you know you were ready for your PhD? I said, I wanted it. And that that's when you're ready is I, if you care enough to follow your passion for four to five to six plus years in a very specific research topic, I think you're more than qualified to do it. And all the other stuff is, you know, extra and technicalities. I love that. That's great that you had such an inspirational advisor who basically just said, go for it when like you'll essentially never, never be ready. Right. It's like the desire to go for things. I like that. Um, I just read The Vanishing Half. Have you read that? No, I haven't read that. Oh, it's really okay. I won't talk about it then, but it's really good. Um, I don't want to like hype it up too much so that eventually, you know, I don't know when things get too much hype, but it's really good. <laughs> and someone gets their degree later on just because they wanted to. So that's what made me think of it. So you mentioned that your parents work at, excuse me, your parents worked at the power plant in town um, and that you grew up right next to a power plant, um, which I just think is interesting context for this next question. So you are a first-generation college student, so I'm curious, how did that impact your career and education decisions, if at all? Yeah, so um, first-generation is sometimes, you know, I think it takes different definitions. So being first-generation to me means my parents, including my stepdad, never really finished school. So my mom had the opportunity to go to college, and she started off, but, you know, for, again, like financial and family reasons, she couldn't finish. Um, and my and my father never went to college and my stepdad didn't either. So first generation means to me that I was the first person to apply and go to college. Um, so I think in my early life, being a first generation student meant a lot of pressure and not necessarily in a bad way, but your parents want what's best for you and they want you to have more opportunity than they ever had. I think that's general to all parents, not just first generation parents. But I think the difference is there's kind of no opportunity to like pivot or explore different things because it's like you have the the they know the route to success and the route to success is like doctor, lawyer, teacher. It's like that that's list of ten things you get and all kindergartners know I want to grow up to be an astronaut, a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, etc. You know, um, so it's about not really knowing about the variety of jobs out there besides like service jobs. Um, or these like 10 beautiful professions that we have the list of in school. Um, so it was always like, you know, you need, to, you need to work hard in school, you need to make a good impression, you need to keep working so that you can go on and do more and be better. Um, and I think it was a good pressure. It pushed me to really care about school. And obviously, I'm like a lifelong school junkie now if I'm doing my PhD and plan to stay there. Um, so I think that's a great thing. But in terms of 
how did it shape my college career? And I think also my graduate career and my choices I'm making today is that when you're a first generation student, there's kind of this idea, and this is not a term I created, but it's a term I use of the hidden curriculum. So what that means is that there's this whole other set of experiences that you'll have to learn kind of new yourself as the first person to go through it. So it's as simple as like, I didn't really know what a teaching assistant was probably until like midway through college. Like I knew we had them, but I didn't know what you can do with that. Like, can you ask questions? I didn't know if it was rude to go up to your professor after class. Like I didn't know how to ask for help. Um, and part of that is like a little bit of a shame for needing help because it sort of solidifies like, oh yeah, like your parents didn't go to school. Like no wonder you need help or that kind of idea of like facilitating that. Um, and it, it can take a really long time to get over. And I think it's, it's highlighted by my experience with my advisor when she's like, why aren't you applying to grad school? I'm like, I didn't even think to do that. I don't know. It's just not, there's not someone like constantly pushing you um, to do that. And I think the hidden curriculum still comes up in graduate school. Like, yes, I've made it to graduate school and, and like, thank you for everyone that supported me and pushed me along the way, including my first generation experience. Like my parents did push me to succeed and I'm thankful and grateful for that. Um, and I had advisors that pushed me in the right direction. But unfortunately, I don't think a lot of people have that or not everyone has that sort of that guidance along the way. So something I think is, you know, crucial to me as a PhD, current PhD student is that I pave the way for other first generation PhD students. Um, and that takes a, like a lot of different forms now for me. And it's something I prioritize. Absolutely. And that means, you know, working with my department to change or to advance our application process or our interview process. Like how can we make things generally more accessible? And how can I continue to serve to pave the way for other people? that were in a similar position or are or will be for you know generations to come. Um, so that hidden curriculum, I can you talk a little bit more about that? Like the origins of that? Is there like a book or a certain person who coined the theory or the term? There is a book. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's called like the guide to graduate life or school and it's called like the hidden curriculum. I don't know if that person or that author coined the term, mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's something, you know, people that have experience know about, right? So it's like this idea or the way I think about it is like, I don't even really know the questions to ask because I don't know what I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, like examples of that, like at least in graduate school is, is during the interview process when I got there and I'm in this room with all of these really accomplished, amazing, qualified people and they're like, oh, did you did you stay with a current student before your interview or did you like get a hotel? And I'm like, oh, how did you how did you get connected to the current student? They're like, oh, you just asked. You didn't know. I'm like, no, I didn't know that you could like email the program and say, hey, I would love the opportunity to meet with a student. And it's not necessarily like an advantage to the interview, but it is an opportunity to learn from the people that are doing it that I would have never thought to ask for. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes the idea of like this hidden curriculum is about having people, it's sometimes it's hard for people to, for you to open up to get people to support you for, so for example, when I talk about this idea of me experiencing the hidden curriculum, in like I'm applying for a scholarship or a travel award or some sort of place where I have to identify and, and describe myself like in a personal statement, I'm gonna have to send this to my advisor who is, you know, kind of been on this path to education and, and had more opportunity and I'm going to have to ask her 
for feedback on my experience in which like someone can't relate to. And I think that's another aspect of the hidden curriculum that we don't really talk about is being able to see yourself on the other side of the table or see yourself like in other positions. And I think that's part of my drive to continue to to participate in the field of academia so that I can continue to represent what maybe someone else would be going through later on. Mm -hmm. But I also saw that you recently shared something with UConn um, that you attended like an LGBTQ plus um, for med school panel. And I guess is that also something that you are, in addition to first generation students, like trying to increase representation in all areas like all ex all life experiences yeah i i did attend um this panel so the panel was about identifying as a member of the lgbtqia plus community um and you know your experience in healthcare, or you know in my case public health the panel is actually earlier today so i can definitely speak to it <laughs> also sorry i know this wasn't in the questions no, no. Okay. I'm glad so as you know, as a member of that community, so I identify as, as part of that community, I, it's a hard question because yes, I do absolutely want to continue to represent my intersectionality across the board. And it's something I'm very comfortable with and, and talking about, but sometimes I feel like it's hard because I didn't always, I, I didn't always outwardly identify that way. So like when I was in college, I wasn't I wasn't out, I wasn't fully formed in my identity. I wasn't necessarily like hiding one way or the other, but I hadn't like fully figured myself out. Um, so sitting on a panel like that is kind of part of me representing, yes, like yes, I'm representing who I am and I want to continue to increase representation of multiple identities as, you know, someone that's half Puerto Rican, as someone that's a first generation student, that's someone that's a member of that community, that's someone you know, that's in graduate school, there's a lot of parts to my identity that I want to continue to represent. Um, but sometimes I wonder if I'm truly doing the right thing in representing, because I'm like, you know, newly in that space. But I think there's no wrong way. What I'm telling myself is there's no wrong time or way to represent a community. Um, and I make that very clear. So even on this panel, I sat on, I said, you know, I don't know that I would have signed up to attend this event if I were a student at UConn three years ago. And you attending is, you know, a fabulous thing. And me being a panelist is just as equally representation. So everyone that's in this space is representing identity, whether it's a student or a panelist. Um, and I think that's, you know, a general takeaway is that we don't necessarily have to, to identify or outwardly say like, hi, I'm representing this to be part of that representation. I think visibility is incredibly important um, and showing up is visibility in itself. You know, being LGBTQ in a space of research is also about like being an advocate in a space where you may not have realized or other people may not have realized that there's like a way to be an advocate. So like what I mean by that is I've mentioned like I work with data and we, we ask questions often like on surveys like, okay, like you're a mother that's giving birth to this child, um, you know, and we, when we study the child for any sort of outcome over life. Um, and also what we usually ask is like, what did, you know, what's the maternal occupation? What did the mother do for work? And the next question will be paternal occupation. What did the father do for work? And, you know, I'm realizing, does that mean everyone in this data set had to identify a certain way to answer these questions? Or if we're missing data on those sort of questions, did someone identify a different way that they couldn't feel comfortable answering the question? And I think that's like a space where being LGBTQ in a research realm 
has like afforded me the opportunity to increase representation, not just like physically, but in the work that we do for populations. So transitioning back to our conversation about career and goal or career and school, um, I'm curious, what are your goals after you complete your PhD? It's a great question. Um, and I'm not sure that I have a great answer. I think my goals are to continue to be energized and curious and follow what excites me. So right now I plan to continue into this idea, like or this path of research, which is a very unique sort of field, this idea of like being in academia. Um, and what that means is that I will continue to kind of progress in this this path of research in a university. So what that looks like is once you finish your PhD, um, a lot of people go on to what's called a postdoc. So it's an opportunity when you've already had your PhD to work semi-independently under someone that's like a more senior person or a faculty member. Um, and then you can continue on to like a, a faculty position where you're, you're teaching courses and you're doing research. Um, but more importantly, I think that's like the actual, you know, checkbox trajectory. I think more importantly, I want to continue to serve as an opportunity, like as a mentor and continue to to advocate for representation in all ways in graduate school and make the process to graduate school more accessible to everyone. So I think beyond everything else, what I would really like to do is to make that jump from even I think it starts way earlier. I think, you know, middle school, high school is energizing people about science and telling everyone that science is a place for everyone whether you would no matter your background identity experiences or whatever time you want to enter science i think it it is a place for anyone that wants to be there like it should be welcome and i think taking that energy at all levels so from high school to college to graduate school is really what would be most important to me and continuing to work and mentor people That sounds amazing. It sounds like you'd be a great college lecturer slash advisor. <laughs> Thank you. I've thought about it. I think, um, you know, when I was in college, I, I looked at these advisors saying, like, I don't, you know, how do you do it? Like, how do you have the energy every day to show up and, and like, be there for me? And then plus however other hundred people you're mm -hmm. there. But, you know, as I've, I think, for me and probably a lot of people that enter the field, it's, like, the most energizing thing, like, the most exciting thing for me is when I get to talk to someone about what they want to do and like see how I can get them further in doing that so yeah I love that just I mean that's part of the reason why I started the podcast not in terms of career advancement but I just really like chatting with people about their lives <laughs> and their decisions and and what excites them so I'm glad it, it sounds like you are similar especially in your own field and you would be great at energizing others so I have a really freaky good memory, so don't be scared of this. But I know that in your undergraduate career, you created your own major, which I feel like is a unique thing to do, especially when you go to a huge school with so many colleges. So what inspired you to create your own? No, I, I love your good memory. I wish I had as good of a memory. <laughs> um, so making my own major was... Uh, a process. I think what really sparked this again is like I am never able to stay in one bucket. I am someone that like really needs to like connect the dots in all as 
like all aspects of my life and I think that was very true to college so I started college um, studying biology again in this space that like I want to help people and to do that is medicine and medicine is you know funded in biology and how things work together which is all partially true um, and this also comes back to being a first-generation student like to me at the time of applying there were like four majors that I could pick from biology engineering English and like I don't know, even know what the last one was to me. So coming to UConn and, and like when I was at Accepted Students Day or whatever they do, you know, that orientation, they hand you this packet with like it has all the majors on the back. And I'm like, I cannot believe you could have picked from any of these. Um, so once I got there and I started taking more classes, I found out that there's this like really interesting major called patho, oh my God, what is it called? Physiology and neurobiology. So it's like even more granular than biology. It's like just thinking about the human and the brain. And I'm like, yes, that's me. I don't care about the fungus or the trees or the bacteria. I just want to talk about humans. So I was like, perfect. This is for me. So then I'm in all of these classes thinking about how anatomy works and how the, you know, the different sort of channels and proteins in our bodies like make things happen and how we can sort of like quantify that and measure. Um, and then I said, but you know, people are so much more than their biology. This idea of like, how we develop, and I mean, we've sort of been talking about this, right? People are informed by their stories um, and who they're around and their environment. And I said, okay, well, actually, I'm really interested in like human development. And then I'm like, okay, so I'll take these some of these classes and I'll do physiology and neurobiology and I'll be happy. And then I'm like, well, what about psychology and sociology and like all of these different things? And what I felt like was that no one major, either in physiology and neurobiology or sociology or psychology, could really address the whole person, the, hu the human itself and how we develop, um, not just like through our experience, but through our bodies as well. Um, and that's what I said. And I petitioned the school. So you have the, at least at UConn, you have the opportunity to petition a major if there's no major that satisfies one single thing. Um, so my self-designed major was called human health sciences and development so it was like this perfect mix for me and i think it still is because a lot of my work is funded like foundationally biology but it's bringing it through the levels of like what is this like mechanism that changes in our body that leads to disease but how do we as a society and people in our environment like influence that um so yeah, that's you know my journey to a self-designed major. I think during it, I was really excited, and as I started to like progress through grad, like my graduate applications in life, people are like, "Well, aren't you worried? People are gonna just say to you like, oh, you couldn't just pick one.'" And I'm like, "I don't think I'm so worried about it because I really can't, and I don't think I would be able to when I go to my graduate career either." And I said, if someone sees value in what I did, then I think that our values would align. And that would be the right space for me. And while I was asked a little bit about it during my interviews, I think it was always with energy of like, you know, what drove you to do this? And it was actually a really nice pivot or like opportunity to explain a bit about who I am and how I see the world. Um, and it wasn't so much like a limitation as I think some feedback I got during the process it might be. Yeah, I'm actually kind of surprised that you received some some pushback during the petitioning. Or was it was it from advisors or professors like who was concerned? Yeah, I think in general, you know, the the people who in which I was petitioning had no no issue with the idea of an individualized major or a self-designed major because that's their office. I think some of the pushback came back from 
you know, like the pre-med or pre-sciencey, I, I don't even know what it's called anymore, <laughs> where they were like, you know, there, there are these buckets to success. Like there's like, you do this and then you do that and then you get to do this. You have to do research. You have to do that. Um, and I think there is like this formulaic idea of like, here's how you can go on this linear path. Um, but, you know, as I've talked to more people and learned and, and seen more experiences, I don't think there's any path that's truly linear. I mean, and I do think we're starting to, as a community of academics, go towards that, this idea of that, like, there's no one mold to lead to success. Um, but I think that's where the pushback came a little bit from people that had a more traditional view of, like, paths to research and science and medicine and health. Interesting. Really interesting. Well, thanks for sharing. I know that you're trying to talk about yourself as a whole person, <laughs> not just academics. So I do have some questions about like wellness and life, yeah. but I think, um, you know, our interview was originally scheduled, but was postponed because you got COVID. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk about that, like how, yeah, how that experience was for you. Yes, um, I'm happy to talk about it. So it was really, you know, for a lot of reasons, getting COVID is, is really scary and it's hard. And, you know, by no means do I think it's a, like a start and end date. So if there's, you know, anyone listening that has gotten COVID or, or may get COVID, like I'm here with you and I know it's a process. I think what was really um, kind of an internal battle for me is that I'm someone that identifies as an epidemiologist um, and a public health practitioner and advocate. Um, and then I was diagnosed with COVID and I didn't know what to do. And, you know, for a year, people have been asking me like, oh, should I do this? What do you think about masks? What do you think about doing this? What do you think about social distancing? Do vaccines work? How do vaccines work? And I felt so confident during all of those, those questions and giving my answers. And then I get a call that says, hey, you're positive for COVID-19. And I'm like, oh my God, what do I do? Um, so, my situation was unique in that I had been exposed, but I was actually house sitting at the time. So I was just with my my uh, girlfriend, Haley. So me and Haley, who she's a nurse and she's fully vaccinated. We get this call and we're house sitting. So we have to isolate from each other. So like, you know, I'm someone that sits in on these kind of conversations about like, what do you need to do in a case like this? And then I'm a person that gets the call and I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's safe. Um, and that's not to say that the guidance isn't right. The guidance is absolutely grounded in science. And like, there are really, really great people that have made decisions for the public. It's just hard to kind of digest all of it at once. And I think that's what I learned is that, you know, being on the person, <laughs> being a person that makes the decisions, but then being a person that has to employ those decisions, I think it taught me two things. I think one is that when we think about issuing public health guidance, like in a very general sense, I think, of course, there needs to be things that are standard among everyone. But maybe when we approach those things, we have to take a step back and look at the individual. So as a person that studies populations, I realize that might be counterintuitive. But right, so there's this guidance, like, you know, you want to stay in your room as much as you can, isolate from anyone that hasn't tested positive. Don't share a bathroom if you can you know, clean the bathroom every, as often as you can, clean your space, but maybe we need to step back and ask people before we tell them these guidances, like, do you have the means to get groceries delivered to you? Do you have the means to clean your bathroom? 
can I give you some access to mental health or physical or uh, primary care physicians, you know, because this will be a process for you. Is there someone that can check in on you every day? How are you feeling? Can you get time off of work? And then give those general guidances. And I think a lot of people do that. And I'm, I'm not um, harping on anyone that's a contact tracer or that issues these guidances. I think, you know, I, I've been one of those people. So I just think experiencing it myself made me realize there's some questions we're missing. And then the second thing is, as a researcher and someone that's doing their PhD, I, I work a lot with data. So, you know, I'm constantly pulling numbers and, and data sets and, and analyzing data. And then the last thing that comes up is like, okay, I've, I've analyzed all of this data. Okay, who is this data from and how can I tell people what I've just done? And I, I think that's what they're doing with COVID, right? So I've just become part of a data set that will be used by people like me for the rest of my life. People will ask questions about what is getting diagnosed with COVID-19 when you're 24? What does that mean for your health at 40 or 60? And I think my entire life I'll be seeing studies like this and knowing I am the study, I'm part of the study. Um, so I think what it kind of said to me is to, to go back. You know, I, I start with data and I, I answer questions because that's part of my training. And that's part of what you need to do to, to do a PhD in epidemiology. But I think, you know, going forward, I will encourage everyone around me and myself to think about what's the end goal first. Say, like, what happens when we have the answers to these questions? And who deserves to be told? Well, I mean, everyone deserves to be told what they found. But how do we prioritize that instead of answering the research question first? Um, which I think is always our priority, but when you get lost in, in data and, and doing the work, it's really easy to kind of lose track of where you started. Um, and I think it was a really good reminder to me to remember where I started and remember the goal of public health is for people. Um, and we need to kind of constantly reflect on that and step backwards to be able to do that well. Yeah, that, that's interesting hearing you say that from both perspectives as someone who is one of those data points and then someone who will be analyzing those data points. Okay, so you work in this space where you talked about your experience with contact tracing and all of the research and guidance. And I'm wondering how you stay calm, well, sane, when you are always inundated by news about <laughs> environmental disasters, maybe, right? It sounds like that's not necessarily your arena, especially in the last year, but then pandemic news. Yeah, I, it, it has to be hard for everyone. And I think what I tend to remind myself is shocking bad news will always get more press than good news because good news is more ubiquitous and it's around us all of the time. Um, whereas these, these more shocking bad things that happen, they make headlines. Um, and I think that's one kind of like approach or like positive spin I put on on news. But that aside, I think there's, you know, some tactics that I use to sort of to mitigate all of the things that are being being told to us constantly, especially like in the age of social media, where we really don't have any escape from like news. So what I tend to do is I try to only read the news like once a day. I don't think I'm going to miss anything if I'm constantly checking it. And I tend to do it at night um, because I know that like I don't want to start my morning in any sort of way. Um, and another thing I do 
which might sound silly, but I get the like New York Times newsletter to my email, which kind of just like gives like a top five kind of of the news cycle of that day. And I kind of let them accumulate in my inbox a little bit and I read them a few days late. And I do that because sort of the like shocking factor dissipates a bit and then I can kind of focus more on the factual basis of things. So that's like one way I have to digesting all of the the constant news like updates that are constantly happening and, and that's more specific to like the pandemic. Um, but I definitely agree that like no matter what your job or field is, you're going to be inundated with like a lot of stuff every single day. And it's about creating space to know that like wherever you're working in, whatever space you're doing, you're contributing to making that space better, right? So like while it could be really hard to to work in a space where we're thinking about disease and disability often or environmental exposures often, it's like we're thinking about them because we're care, we're caring enough to try to find a solution to them. We're trying to improve them. Um, and it's not every day that I can take that lens to it, absolutely not. But I think that, you know, these constant reminders and like these tactics to try to digest news and sort of these like sad parts of our job, whatever your job is, do really help, especially in a space when we're working from home and home has become work. Yeah, absolutely. I will say that I enjoy listening to your responses because you seem like very it seems like you've really done a lot of work to like understand what you like, who you are, what motivates you. And I admire how even when I ask you unplanned questions, like you really have a well thought out response. So. <laughs> I'm saying that. I don't know if I feel the same way. <laughs> You're welcome. So next question is who do you look up to? So... I feel like this is a cop-out answer, but I genuinely, honestly look up to everyone around me. I, I really approach every opportunity I have to talk to someone as a moment to learn. I feel like, and I, I'm sure you feel the same way. I mean, this is like kind of the basis of your podcast is like, there's so much to learn from the people around you. Um, I also really look up to my dad. He is the kindest person in the entire world, and he is this is important and it'll kind of put everything in context. He's a six foot two man who's like really muscular and he's fully tattooed his entire body and he just doesn't look like who he really is. Like he is just like the kindest, most sweet, like lovable person in the world. And like ever since we were little, like he will go out of his way to like make someone else's day easier. Like I can just like, I ever have this like very distinct memory of being at a mall when we were really little and him going up to someone, he's like, you kind of look lost. Are you like, are you okay? And you know, he like guided this person to like their car. And I, I was too young to fully understand the question, like what was actually happening? Was this person sick? I don't know. But like he never stops and never hesitates to like do something for someone. And I think that's really like just so admirable. And I, I never see him ever hesitate to help me or help anyone I know. He's like, what can I do to make someone's better? Because I think that like makes him better. And I think that's something I really tried to, to like emulate myself. And I also really look up to my girlfriend, Haley. She's a nurse and she started nursing at the, like in March, like a little earlier, but like 2020 was like her first year as a nurse. And it hasn't hardened her at all, you know? And being on the like another space of the pandemic and working towards public health, like I think I've been so tempted to be hardened by things like, and like just tired and burnt out and 
I've just never seen her waver in her empathy or her compassion for people. And, you know, I've been talking a lot about trying to separate work from home, but I've never seen someone do it so seamlessly. And I think I really look up to her and all the frontline workers because if anyone has a good reason to bring their work home, it would be them. But I've never met a single one of them that has. So I look up to a lot of people, but I think those are the ones that stick out in my brain right now. Um, you are well-traveled. So I'm wondering what has your, and this is just from following you on Instagram. So maybe I'm completely mistaken and we can have a conversation about social media. <laughs> But um, what has been your favorite place to go to? Yeah, um, no, you're right. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's funny, I'm laughing because, um, you know, sometimes when I see people that I haven't seen in a while, they say like, oh my God, it's so glad to see you here, not traveling. And I'm like, wow, I think the only thing I do post is when I go somewhere because that's like mm -hmm. the really like, the I don't do anything exciting when I'm home. <laughs> but yeah, so I've had the, the like, honestly the privilege and opportunity to travel a bit um and you know that's part of kind of tying to some opportunities i've had it like at uconn or even in my graduate program now um the one big pro to being an academic is the travel um pre-pandemic so you know i had a conference um in amsterdam last year so i had the opportunity to like travel around that and, and space that out so i've been a few places but i think I think I'm answering your question in terms of not what like my favorite place would be, but the place I would go back to because I think, you know, I think that that's a different question, but <laughs> that's the one I'm going to answer. But so, yeah, I think I'd go back to Germany because I really like. So when I go and travel, I try to do these free walking tours whenever they're available. So that means, you know, <laughs> I just like do my research and find what like central square I can meet in and, and follow a tour guide around to learn. Because like I said, I'm extremely curious. Um, and when I visited Berlin, they have a hard history, you know, in terms of World War II and, and a lot of other spaces in history. But I even the tour guide's attitude and the people around and in Germany, they really approach their history as a as a space to learn from history. And I don't think we necessarily do that in the United States um, or in a lot of places. And it does it doesn't have to be about country, but just in general, like, I don't think people tend to do that. And I, I felt this sense of like, we were part of this, you know, this horrible space in history. Here's why we reflect on it. And this is how it will never happen again here. And they take the space and they meaning like, you know, the people I met when I was there and like, they honestly reflect on it. So much so that, like, I think I've reflected on that, that like, one trip and those two days I spent in Berlin, like, quite often when I think about places I've been. And I think that I have so much more to learn from that, that space and their history that if I can go back, I would. So I guess when you think about traveling, is that, like, a memory that always stands out? <laughs> I'm laughing because, like, a few memories came up when you asked me that question. Um, Yes, I think that that's the place where I'm like, wow, I like learned and gained the most. Um, I, I think of a me another memory that really sticks out is like, you know, also traveling in places where I just really know nothing about, like know how to get around and, and being lost and having to like find myself um, and rely on other people is like mostly what comes up when you ask that question. So always travel with a buddy that's smarter than you, which is my like <laughs> traveling, which is what I always do. I love that. So you mentioned that you are Puerto Rican, right? So your mm -hmm. mother's from Puerto Rico. 
And I am curious, have you always felt proud of your Puerto Rican background? And if you can just talk a little bit about that journey experience. Yeah, I'm, so I know this is like an audio, like right experience, but um, if someone were to see me, they would they would not guess that I'm Puerto Rican. I'm very white facing and I definitely like, if someone had to guess my ethnicity, I don't think Puerto Rican would be in the top five. Um, but I think I most strongly identify with that part of my ethnicity or, or identity because that's like the most where I feel like we've celebrated culturally growing up. So my mom's Puerto Rican and, and my dad is just honestly just American. <laughs> but, you know, we, we celebrated their traditions. We ate their food. You know, we've been engulfed in that culture. I, we travel to Puerto Rico often. My parents, my mom and my stepdad, I mean, are like in the process of moving back there. My stepdad is also a full, like fully Puerto Rican. And I feel like that's where I've identified the most in terms of my culture and my take on life. So, you know, I think each group of people have a perspective and like a, a way that they like approach life. And I feel like mine most culturally identifies with being Puerto Rican. And I think I've always been proud of that. Um, but sometimes I think I wasn't, I was never really challenged to identify myself. I think that's a privilege because I am white facing, but also because it never really comes up until you go to a new space. So like when I went to college and you, you like have to check boxes or go to groups, I found it a bit hard to feel welcomed in certain spaces because, you know, I don't fully present as Puerto Rican and I'm not fully Puerto Rican. So do I fit in that bucket or I didn't really necessarily feel like I fit with people that, you know, identified purely as like white or one other thing. And so I've always felt proud of it, but I've never felt like fully, I've never been able to fully like iron out being sort of like, for lack of a better term, like a mixed sort of background. And I think I'm not alone in that. And that doesn't ask like also have to just relate to like your ethnicity or wherever, you know, kind of bucket you fit in. But I also thought about your question too, is like, have I always been like being a woman, right? Like being a woman in STEM, someone that identifies as a, like a cisgendered woman is like, I never really thought of that as like a, as a down tick or like something that I needed to be in like support for, right? There's like this, this idea of like women in STEM or like being a woman academic. And it's like, I never thought I shouldn't be proud of being a woman until I really think I went to college and there were all these resources for women in science. I'm like, why? You know, like, well, I mean, for good reason, but I didn't, I didn't know that that was part of my identity until college. And I think when you move through spaces, you learn parts of your identity. And, and on the panel we talked about earlier and that I sat on, we talked about like having to re-come out every time you go to a new space is like, sometimes you forget that you have to come out. And like in this new virtual world, like people starting jobs or, or careers or, or schools or programs, I, I do genuinely feel like a huge amount of compassion for them because you can't really like identify whatever way or come out whatever way like personally or in groups like everything is just so like probably one-on-one -on -one. um so you know i don't even know if i answered your original question i think what i'm getting at is i've always been proud but i don't know that i've always realized that certain things have been part of my identity until i've been challenged to identify them in new spaces yeah that's that's really interesting because in a way I think you could look at that negatively, right? Like why, when I was in school, did I have to be put in this bucket? The idea of like categorizing, right, is, is a, we do it by nature, but is it like the right thing to do? And I see your point about like, yes, you can t potentially view this 
like negatively like right like why did I have to identify as this this group to mm-hmm. but then at the same time you know I think when you're with people that identify in the same way as you whether that be you know part of the LGBTQ or you know as a woman in STEM or as someone that's you know from Puerto Rican descent like I think there are similarities in common ground that really like spark a sense of comfort so I don't necessarily always support the idea of like over categorization and and in fact I find it very hard to put myself into a category a lot of times but I do believe in the idea of of sharing your identity to to open up the space to be more comfortable and I mean that in the sense is you know as a teaching assistant and as a graduate teaching assistant I work really hard to put myself all out there say like I identify as this I'm I use she her pronouns and I think whether or not people identify with or with a certain category of that, I think people feel more comfortable. And this has been like feedback we get generally from students with the idea of being able to share their identities, whether it matches yours. It's just the idea of of sharing um, to create, you know, to kind of level out where are we coming from, what are our perspectives, and what might shape our responses and our experience in this class or in this space or in this world or whatever it is. I think it's a really good thing to talk about because it's a really it's challenging because what whatever you're coming from right it's should I ask someone's identity or should I state my identity like am I doing more good than bad and I think no matter what comes from it it's like all about learning and learning from people like which is why like you right like you've talked about this podcast is like growing with each other so mm-hmm. I think yeah. all it's extremely valid and it, and it brings us forward as like individuals that are communicating together to, to find common place and to ask each other those kind of questions Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I just really appreciate your thoughtful answer and sharing about your life, um, especially as being a graduate teaching assistant. Like that just sounds like I can imagine your your classrooms are very welcoming. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so you are engaged with many extracurriculars and community programs. Do you have any tips for getting involved with your community? I do. I I encourage anyone that will listen to to absolutely put themselves in a position to try anything they want. So I think a lot of people in general will see a space where there's an opportunity to apply, whether it's for a position or an extracurricular or volunteer and say, okay, here's a list of qualifications. Oh, I only meet like five out of six or I meet five out of 10. And I think that's a huge hindrance for a lot of people, um, particularly those that identify as women. And I have taken this new approach to things, and I did this in college, and I encourage everyone to do it, is to not read the qualifications for pretty much anything and apply for what you're interested in because you know opportunities will come out of it. I remember I applied for this uh, research position at UConn when I was like a sophomore junior, and I like sort of fit the bill. Um, and I think one of the qualifications was like absolutely being fluent, fluent in Spanish. And you know I have Puerto Rican background, and I, I can I can make my way, but I definitely am not like 100% fluent. So I got there and during the interview we're, we're speaking Spanish and like halfway through she's just like, are you really fluent? And I was like, no. I was like, I can make way though and I thought I'd try. And she was like, you know, I appreciate you you sticking your neck there, out there anyway. This role won't work for you, but this one will. And like, so I think that like putting you in a position, putting yourself in a position to apply for everything you're interested in or put yourself in like, or to try to do everything you're interested in puts you in a position to say, okay, here's what I actually am going to do. So I encourage people to 
to try new things and put themselves in a position of power to say, I have all these opportunities that I've now applied for that I can access, and here are the ones I'm actually going to do. Um, so that's like my one tip to getting involved. But also, if there are, you know, I think everyone's really busy. Like we're all really busy and we're even more busy now. I think the number of meetings I've had during the pandemic have definitely like increased like tenfold. But if there's an extracurricular that's important to you that doesn't feel like it can fit, try to make space for it because it might just energize you to do the other stuff. So, um, you know, what's pretty common when you're getting your PhD is that people have the experience that their advisors say, like, you need to focus on your research. You need to work towards graduation. Like, I know you want to mentor this student or I know you want to do this outreach program, but you have to do your research. It's like, first of all, my advisor has never really done that to me and I'm very thankful for her. But the other piece is like, I've always taken the frame as like, I know that this will take away from like, you know, my research that I'm doing, but this is what's going to energize me to show up every day and be here. So like do the things that energize you, even if they feel like they can't fit. Like, I think you can try to prioritize what energizes you over what sometimes you need to do. And, and it will work out if, if you are truly energized by the thing. That's great advice. I love that. So I have a few closing questions. Uh, One of them is fun. What do you recommend people? Well, they're actually both fun. But what do you recommend people read, watch, and listen to? It's a good question. And I, I've been thinking about it. Like, what do I recommend? Um, I think a lot of people, you know, read a lot and watch a lot for work. So I tend to use reading and watching and listening as a space for fun. Um, so I've, I think one of the books that has made the greatest influence on my life and my approach to everything, which again is also a bit of maybe like a nerdy book recommendation, but it's called The Power of Habit. And it's this idea of how, you know, we form habits and and how that really shapes pretty much everything we do. And I really take all of the like methods and and theories that they've discussed in that book like with me a lot. And I think it's really shaped like my my approach to wellness and especially wellness and in a PhD program and wellness in um, in a pandemic. <laughs> um, yeah, and I I tend to feel like I'm never getting enough news. Like I feel like behind and I know that's probably not true. It's just like an insecurity I have. So if you're someone like me and feel like, oh, like everyone's talking about things I don't know about, I tend to listen to like NPR has like a two minute clip like every few hours and I try to listen to the one in the morning at night and I feel like, a lot better about my news intake when I do that. Oh, I love, I love that. Which one is that called? Oh, good. They have like many podcasts. Um, I think it's NPR Up Next. It's like two to three minutes in the morning, and it's just like a basic cover of everything that is happening. Um, and I try to do it like I go for a walk in the morning and just play that. And I'm like, okay, I have my three minutes of news to carry me through, like those meetings you have when someone's like, did you see that? I'm like. Oh, I actually know about that today. Oh, nice. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. So those are my recommendations. Cool. And do you have a watch? You don't need all three, but I'm just curious. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, 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 okay, so maybe I should be not saying this because it's, maybe it's embarrassing, but I've been, <laughs> I've been really like reliant on reality TV shows like recently. And my favorite one these days is Survivor. And they have like all the seasons up on like, I think they have a few on Netflix and CBS. And I think what I really like about it 
is just I don't know I think it's about learning from people again like I get to see how all these different personalities like intertwine and interact in like an actual game of survival um and maybe it's because we've all been really like challenged to survive in a lot of different ways over the last year to like see it on tv in its most basic form is like a really good escapism for me (laughs) definitely and also survivor was kind of pre-social media era yeah so i just like reality tv before social media is very different than it than it is today yeah and then my last question is how can people follow and support you yeah so um i think people can you know support me or we can support each other by connection so if you know if there's anyone that was like listening that resonated with something i said or or is interested in anything that i've talked about i would love to connect and and reach out and you can do that by reaching me on twitter so my twitter name is my full name without the first a so it's lexa friedman on twitter and i'm positive that's because i probably made a full name twitter years ago and i've lost the password um but other than that uh, you can find me also on Instagram, and I've just recently started some blogs on the Medium, which is also my full name. So, yeah, that would be some ways you can keep up and follow and connect with me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was so great to get the chance to chat with you again. Thank you so much for tuning in to that episode of the That's My Truth podcast. I hope you loved the interview with Alexa. Like she mentioned, make sure to follow her on Twitter, check out her Medium page, and you can also find her on Instagram. Everything she mentioned is included in the show notes, so be sure to check there if you're interested in following up on any of the things we discussed. And as a reminder, if you're looking for ways to support the show, you can do so by sharing an episode with a friend following us on social media. So the Instagram account for the podcast is That's My Truth Podcast. Or you can leave us a review and rating in Apple Podcasts. So that is all for the show today. Thank you so much to Alexa. Thank you so much to you, the listener, for getting through this episode. I appreciate it. And I hope you have a great week.